Well, I grew up without siblings. I was an only child growing up, but I was never really lonely or bored. I was easily entertained um, in the pages of a great story in a book or simply left alone to my own vivid imagination. And I will admit that part of my imaginary world as a child did include wondering what it would be like to have a brother or a sister. In my mind, the world of siblings seemed almost magical. I mean, how great to have a built-in playmate, a partner in crime to annoy your parents with. I imagined in my mind it would be like having an older brother who would watch over and protect me or teach me to do trick basketball shots or great karate moves. I pictured having a sister who would giggle with me and braid my hair while swapping secrets. And strangely enough, when I would visit my friends' homes and watch them in action with their own siblings, they weren't really living out this tale of fairy tale bliss, the one I had pictured in my imagination. When I got a peek into other families' lives, into their everyday working, it seemed a lot less like an episode of Little House on the Prairie or The Brady Bunch, maybe a little more like Lord of the Flies. Some kind of horror movie where people are picked off one by one. And because I had no personal experience with siblings of my own, I was always a little confounded by the jealousy and the hostility that arose in these family relationships. I mean, how, I just, help me understand, I do not get how one person gains so much pleasure in annoying another person. How is that enjoyable? How does one person enjoy so much taking their finger and placing it one-eighth of an inch from another person's face and saying something like, what? I'm not touching you. Oh, you know it. <laughs> you did it, didn't you? And you probably had it done to you. I, I was totally confused by this, but had I read Genesis at that point, I probably would have gotten it. I would have understood because Genesis is honest about families. It is especially candid about sibling relationships. And from beginning to end, Genesis is filled with brothers and sisters doing worse than annoying each other. It spins tales of sibling rivalry about things that are horrific and at the same time completely believable. The first set of siblings, Cain and Abel, they get the first chance at brotherly love and what do they do? They bring on the first fratricide. The brothers Jacob and Esau wrestle in the womb and then throughout their lives for dominance and possession of power and inheritance. And in that same generation, the sisters, Rachel and Leah, compete for a husband's love and they use their children as collateral in a lifelong rivalry. Even when we get to the last major generation of Genesis, Joseph and his brothers, they're still fighting they're still bragging. They're contemplating murder, selling one another into slavery. They're picking up the pieces of the human family that's been broken since Genesis 3. And they're playing out the story 
of the conflict of the human heart and the conflict between human brothers that often gets played out in our families. If we ever needed assurance that it was completely normal for brothers and sisters to experience strong feelings of both love and hate towards each other, Genesis is all the proof we need. Jacob and Esau's story is filled with conflict and friction, even starting in utero. Uh, my husband, with his wry sense of humor, would call Jacob and Esau womb mates. I don't claim that one, I'm just quoting. They are twins, and even though we might expect them to have some kind of similarity, they are different in every way. How can two people from the same mix of DNA, the same womb, the same upbringing, grow up to be so different? That is a question that parents are still asking themselves to this day. Even their names mark them as different from the beginning. Esau's name is simple, obvious to the point, just like him. Esau is born covered in red hair. That is an unusual thing to happen to a baby, I might add. I have never heard of it happening since. So his parents take one look at him, and they name him Harry. Creative, right? The first thing that they see, Harry, and that's Esau. And the midwife delivering them had not even gotten the words, it's a boy, out of her mouth when she noticed that right on his heels, I mean, literally grabbing onto Esau's heel with his chubby little hand was his younger brother, and younger by the smallest margin possible. Jacob emerges into the world, grasping at his brother as if to say, oh, no, you don't. I wanted to be first. And his name is symbolic. It's action-driven, not observation. And it's unfortunately laced with subversive meaning. Jacob means grabby, um, but it also means deceiver, supplanter, one who grabs what is not his and takes it for his own. So hairy and grabby, really? Those are the twins. Not the most creative choices, but descriptive, you have to admit. They tell a story. And Jacob will grow up to fulfill that story, to live into the meaning behind his name. His words, his actions are laced with deception and self-interest. Jacob spends his life grabbing hold of what his firstborn brother has. And it's more than just an act of neonatal rivalry. I mean, those few seconds by which he missed the title, he missed being firstborn, it meant that Jacob would always grow up comparing himself to his brother. And these boys were born in a day when that famous sibling phrase, it's not fair. I mean, that meant something different than just Christmas presents or later bedtimes. It meant that whoever happened to be born first, even seconds first in this case, would someday collect a much larger share of the inheritance, a double portion. And it meant, the birthright meant, that upon the death of their father, the oldest would also become the patriarch of the family. This birthright meant that if Jacob the younger was ever tempted to whine at his older brother, as younger siblings often do growing up, you're not the boss of me, Esau could have responded, you just wait. 
I will be someday. And he would have been right. The seeming injustice of being born just seconds too late for that birthright, that troubled Jacob in his childhood. I mean, what was so special about hairy old Esau that he would get everything? The family, the inheritance, and rule over everyone. Jacob, he glared miserably at that greener grass on the other side of Esau's fence, and he plotted and he waited to see how he could get it for himself. And his opportunity finally came when Esau returned from one of his long hunting trips, exhausted and empty-handed, and dragging himself into the kitchen, Esau declared, I'm starving to death. What have you got to eat around here? And it just so happened that Jacob, good old grabby, had been cooking something up in more ways than one. Jacob was eating the last bowl of prepared food in the house, a red stew. And this was not the era of fast food. There is no Easy Mac in this house. It is a time when the recipe for chicken nuggets began with the phrase, go out back and find a chicken and kill it. There is no quick path to a meal here. And so while Esau wasn't going to wait, Jacob was ready and waiting and he was ready to take advantage of his brother's moment of weakness. He had been stewing to get his hands on what he wanted from Esau all this time from the moment of their birth. And so he introduced the deal that would change their lives forever, Esau's birthright for just one bowl of food. And Esau agreed. Aren't you shocked by that? This is a surprising moment in this story. Esau agreed. How could he think so little of his inheritance to hand it away? The deal was sealed. And both brothers got what they wanted. But neither of them ended up satisfied. Esau's bowl would satisfy for only a time, and he would be hungry again. This time without his inheritance to his name. And Jacob's newly acquired birthright was just the beginning of an underhanded series of events that would end with him sinking so low that he would deceive his blind elderly father on his deathbed and steal Esau's blessing as well. He had to pretend to be someone else in his own family to get the blessing deserved by someone else, tricking his father pretending to be something he was not. And friends, it does not get any lower than that. You're going to deceive your own father on his deathbed. Jacob's actions caused so much devastation in this family that he would have to run away to the far country, making it impossible for him to enjoy the land, the inheritance, the leadership, any of what he wanted. He had to ditch it because his life was in danger. He had grabbed for things that were on someone else's plate. And that story never ends well. This desire that we see wrapped up in this family, and if we're honest, in our own families, is the urge to compete, to compare ourselves with one another. And it may begin at home when we're small, but it does not stay there. Unfortunately, the family sometimes becomes training ground for the urge we all struggle with, this human tendency towards competition and comparison. And I have often wondered about our Christian tendency of just lightly referring to one another as brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we call each other. 
It, it seems so nice, right? Like maybe a little too nice sometimes, that old school, sappy, Christian kind of nice, where we call each other Brother Steve, Sister Leanne. But anyone who thinks that referring to someone else as a brother and a sister means all charming and positive emotions all the time has not really met a real life brother or sister. I mean, I now have a pair living in my own home, and it is an education, let me tell you. I wonder if maybe this tradition where we refer to one another in Christ as brother and sister that started in Jesus' reference to his mother and brothers being the ones that do his will went on in Peter's preaching and in Paul's letters. It's obvious that these familiar and familial titles might be just as much about an acknowledgement of some of the deep struggles and wounds in these relationships with one another, just as much as it is an acknowledgement that we are a family in connection. I had a pastor tell me once that he had, in his congregation and in his leadership, high-powered executives, community leaders, CEOs, heads of large nonprofits, um, all of them coming to church and coming to meetings and leading things. And he said all week long, these folks would run multi-million dollar enterprises. And when they drove into the church parking lot, it seemed like they became six-year-olds all over again. Saying that we are brothers and sisters in Christ acknowledges that the family of God is often a place where childish feelings come into play. That we might be brothers like Jacob and Esau. That we might be sisters like Rachel and Leah. I've been in a few church meetings where I wondered if Cain and Abel was about to happen all over again. And I would love to say that these feelings and actions are only present in the laity of the church and not the leadership. But I have to tell you that I have seen more professional jealousy, competition, and comparison among those who are in ministry than anywhere else. And friends, it runs rampant in seminary life. In fact, it seems like professional jealousy is the acceptable sin of ministry. It makes us say things like, Sure, that ministry is growing, but they're not really preaching the gospel. It's easy to gather a crowd if you're not really challenging people. It's that sinking feeling we hear when the numbers of someone else's church or youth group attendance are named. Or when someone posts a victory about their ministry on social media. It's why closer to home here, when a friend gets a good grade, or a good ministry job, or recognition of some kind. We feel a stirring of something in us. Do you recognize that feeling? It's not celebration for them, is it? It's why we feel resentment sometimes when someone gives a clever answer in class or is recognized as shining as a leader in this community. It's why people love to hate Joel Osteen. Now, are there things to be talked about and processed and questioned in the theology of that preaching? In every sermon there is. But I would say that the very vocal criticism there has less to do with theology 
and more to do with feelings of inadequacy coming out when we see someone else's ministry. Large ministries are easy targets. It's what keeps churches from more partnership with each other, wondering who will get the credit or the converts or the control. It's what caused the disciples of John the Baptist to come to him and say, teacher, teacher, look, you used to draw the big crowds, but somebody else has set up shop on the other side of the Jordan. And those who used to be following you are now following that crazy guy over there. And you are not gonna believe this, John. He is baptizing. Like, isn't that your thing? Aren't you the Baptist? And now everyone is going to go to him. And you know what John said to them? He said this, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify, I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. So here is John's cure for the comparison and competition that ail us. Remember, our gifts are only things given to us from heaven. In effect, your gifts are not given to you, they are given through you for someone else. They're heaven's gifts, not yours to hold up. And second, what does he say to them? I am not the Messiah. Now, I would say that as part of your spiritual disciplines in your ministry and life, it would be a great practice to wake up every morning, find your way to your bathroom, splash some water on your face, and look yourself in the eye in the mirror and say out loud to yourself, I am not the Messiah. Let's try that together. How about that? Can you say it with me? I am not the Messiah. You just took the first step of every great ministry. I would say that I am not the Messiah is a defining moment in ministry for all of us. Dr. Dennis Kinlaw, who was the former president of Asbury University and who passed away early this year, once told a story about Samuel Chadwick, the man who was famous for writing great books on prayer and on the Holy Spirit. And as a young man, Samuel Chadwick was invited to speak at a conference in Britain. And the other speaker at this conference was a man much more advanced in his ministry, a man named G. Campbell Morgan. Now, G. Campbell Morgan was known in his time to be the greatest preacher in the English language. And Samuel Chadwick, the younger man, he thought to himself, well, now what an honor to be asked to speak at the same conference as such a great man. I'll bet people will take notice of me now. Only during the conference, he noticed a strange thing going on. He noticed that attendance was low when he preached. But when G. Campbell Morgan came in right after him, the crowds came in to listen to him. Then on another day, G. Campbell Morgan got up and spoke to a great crowd. And when Samuel Chadwick got up to follow him, the crowd left. And Chadwick was hurt, wouldn't you be? So he went up to his room to pray. This is not fair, Lord, he said. And he said he sensed the Lord replying. In his spirit, he felt the Lord saying, oh, what do you want me to do about it? Well, I don't know, he replied, but this is embarrassing. And again, he felt the Lord respond in his spirit, this time with a question. Samuel, are you sorry that we've got a man like G. Campbell Morgan on our team? 
No, Samuel replied. No, but Lord, it hurts. Are you suggesting then, he felt the Lord ask, are you suggesting that I stop blessing G. Campbell Morgan? That's when Samuel Chadwick says he saw the truth in himself. He found himself saying, forgive my attitude, Lord. Not, I'm not sorry that we've got a fellow like G. Campbell Morgan on our team. No, I don't want you to quit blessing him. And he said after that moment, he made it a daily practice to get on his knees and pray for G. Campbell Morgan, the man who he originally sort of felt was his rival. He became a prayer warrior for his ministry, someone he now saw as a teammate for the same goal. And Dr. Kinlaw, who is a very wise man, followed this story with these words. When the Spirit comes in his sanctifying fullness, he cleanses us of the self-interest that corrupts all we touch apart from his cleansing. He sets us free to rejoice in his work, not in ours. In fact, we find true fulfillment only in his working, no matter how or through whom he comes. This is the real liberation of Christian living, liberation from the inward bounds of self. Imagine if Jacob had been able to see Esau as a member of the same team, working towards the same goals rather than a rival that he needed to win against. Isn't a family the most basic kind of team you can be a part of? And isn't the church of Jesus Christ a family? then why aren't we playing on the same team? I'm not the Messiah, John the Baptist shrugs, but I play for his team. While Jacob was the one who spent his life trying to grab at what was his brother's, Esau is not exactly faultless in this story. You know that, right? Jacob could not have taken what Esau was not willing to trade. Genesis 25 ends with the strong words, and Esau despised his birthright. While Jacob considered the role of secondborn so meager and worthless that he would tear his family apart to trade places, Esau, in a moment of weakness and instant gratification, felt that a bowl of food was worth more than his rightful inheritance. Esau despised the future that had been placed before him. He didn't hold on to what had been passed down to him. And while Jacob was wishing he was Esau, Esau was giving away his inheritance too. They both undervalued their inheritance and their identity. You were each born with a kind of birthright. The details that make us all uniquely who we are. But if we all spend our time measuring our birthright, ourselves, against someone else's, we are basically saying, like Esau, that we would trade our birthright, our gifts away, all for want of what we see in someone else's hand. If we wanna live into our full potential as splendid creatures of a boundless creator, we need to stop giving away our birthrights just because we think we'd look better wearing someone else's. Here is the truth, God made you. You are his masterpiece. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. There are things that God made in you that he made in no one else. 
There are things you are called to do in his kingdom that only you can fulfill. And spending your time wishing that you were something you were not says that you don't trust that God did a good job when he made you. And that's just not possible. He does not make cheap merchandise. He does not make damaged goods. And he does not make mistakes. God's blessings are not some limited resource we have to compete against each other for. They are far from scarce. They are abundant. He gives them freely and abundantly and new every morning. And you don't have to trick him by pretending to be something that you're not. You don't have to compete against those closest to you for something that will elude or disappoint. You only have to open your eyes and see the blessings around you made just for you and receive. Early in my ministry as a pastor, I once sat in a powerful worship service where one of my colleagues was doing an amazing job preaching. This was a community-wide event, an evening worship service that filled a large sanctuary with thousands of people. And this guy, the preacher, he was killing it. And I, I don't know why we use killing it to describe sermons. It's so strange to me. But we say it to each other, and he was. And he was a few years younger than me, a, a young guy with little experience but a lot of passion. He was the kind of preacher that can pull off that tight t-shirt and ripped jeans look and walk around while he's preaching. Like if I tried to walk while I talked to you, I would fall several <laughs> times. And he was telling these great stories, making the whole packed crowd laugh at his great jokes and then cry at his moving stories. And the people were spellbound. I mean... They were hanging on to his every word, and they were hungry to hear the gospel, and it was glorious. And I sat there, I sat down there in the seats, and I looked up there on the platform at my friend, my brother, with the attention of thousands of people on him, and I have to tell you the thought that went through my head. I'm not proud of it. It was this. When is it my turn, Lord? When is it my turn to shine like that? To have everyone listening to me, to share the gifts I know you've given me. And like Samuel Chadwick, I actually felt the Lord reply. I thought one of his thoughts in my head that was meant for me. And do you know what he said? Never. It's never your turn. You don't get the attention. You don't deserve the glory. It's not your spotlight. All that is mine. It is not yours, and it's never going to be your turn. And honestly, that moment of conviction changed the course of my entire ministry, of my outlook of what it means to be successful and serve Jesus. And it's helped me be glad that the Lord has people on our team who have fantastic gifts and ministries and churches. They are my brothers and sisters in this family. And it's the family that belongs to Christ. I am not the Messiah, but I play for his team. And all the glory is his, now and forever. Amen.